Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Today, we look at one of the more controversial and often misunderstood statements Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, This is what he said. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Uh, This picture of a narrow gate touches on a deep concern a lot of thoughtful people have about Christianity. Uh, The the concern is this, uh, Christianity calls certain beliefs wrong and certain behaviors immoral. Uh, Therefore, it impinges on human freedom by telling people what they must think and how they must live. Uh, Furthermore, Christians believe they know absolute truth. Therefore, they believe people who disagree with them are wrong, and they're not just wrong, but they're condemned before God. Again, a lot of people have this concern. The French Enlightenment thinker uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he wrote this, It is impossible to live at peace with those we regard as damned. Uh, Therefore, this concern goes, Christians must be intolerant to atheists or agnostics, you know, people of other religions and even uh, other kinds of uh, Christians like Catholics versus Protestants or liberals versus conservatives. It's often thought that the narrow way leads to a narrow mind, to unthinking, irrational, blindly compliant to authority, intolerant bigots. And of course, it's true that many of us who call ourselves Christians are often guilty of such things or have been guilty of such things in the past. Uh, Here's what's interesting. If you look carefully and examine the life and teachings of Jesus, you notice what looks to our culture like a very strange paradox. On the one hand, Jesus makes statements that appear to be outrageously, staggeringly exclusive. Uh, He prayed one time, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus says, there is a God, and not just that, he is the true God, so all other gods are false gods, and not just that, He is the only true God. Most famously, Jesus once said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus didn't uh, present his teachings as optional suggestions for a better life. I mean, he claimed to know how things are. He claimed that what he said wasn't just wise, it was true. He claimed this truth mattered more than anything else in the world. And yet, this man who made claims that were staggeringly and breathtakingly exclusive pursued relational connections with people who were scandalously and breathtakingly inclusive. He deliberately touched an untouchable leper. 
He allowed a known prostitute to bathe his feet with her hair. He commended a hated Roman centurion. He partied with uh, despised tax collectors. I'll give you one very striking example of this relational inclusiveness on Jesus's part. Uh, he was approached once by 10 lepers. Uh, some of them were Jewish, but at least one of them was a Samaritan. Uh, so they would have been an interfaith community and Jesus heals them. And then he gives them a command, go show yourselves to the priests. The reason for going to a priest was in that day, the priest was like a doctor. Um, they didn't really have doctors like we do. And a priest was the one who would give a leper a clean bill of health so he or she could rejoin society. And we would expect Jesus after healing a group of lepers to say, go show yourself to the priest, the nearest priest, singular. But here he says priests. Why does he use the plural? Because Jewish lepers would go to a Jewish priest and a Samaritan leper would go to a Samaritan priest. In other words, Jesus doesn't say, now that I've healed you, you must convert to my religion. He enters into a healing relationship with unclean, unorthodox, non-Jewish lepers. And then he actually sends them to their own Jewish and Samaritan priest to be pronounced clean. It's almost like Jesus thinks a relationship with him now transcends human religion categories. It's like the, the narrower Jesus gets in his devotion to God, the more broad-minded he is in his love and reaching out to human beings. Now, his followers often missed this dynamic. The Barna Group is an organization that does a lot of research around faith in our day. And they found American culture is increasingly splintered and divided. Uh, most Americans indicate uh, they think it would be difficult to have a, a natural and normal conversation with a minority group, someone who is different than them. That's one of the ways to measure people's broad-mindedness. They say they would find it difficult to have a natural, normal conversation with someone in a minority group, someone who is different than them, like a, a Muslim or an atheist or an evangelical or a member of the LGBTQ community or a Mormon or whoever. Now, the single group that has the hardest time having natural and normal conversations with minority groups is evangelical Christians. In fact, I found this kind of strange. Not only do evangelicals have the hardest time having normal, natural conversations with atheists or Muslims or people of a different sexual orientation, but 28% of evangelicals say they have a hard time having a normal conversation with other evangelicals. Now, contrast that with the longest conversation recorded in the Bible, which was between Jesus and a pagan Samaritan woman who was married five times and lived with a man who was not her husband. I mean, this woman who no other rabbi would have ever gone near. In other words, when you look at Jesus and his followers today, by our own admission in research, the followers of the most inclusive man in human history have become the most excluding people in American society. Often we're 
quite lax in our devotion to God, but relentlessly narrow-minded in our relationships and attitudes toward people. Jesus, on the other hand, was relentlessly narrow in his devotion to God, but outrageously broad-minded toward people. Why is that? Why was he that way? You know, some say he was just inconsistent. Some say he was a, a nice guy, but not a really good thinker. Uh, some have said maybe these claims of Jesus' authority and religious convictions got made up by Paul and others got you know, retrofitted back into the Gospels. Some people say he was, uh, it was, he was not that clear about his own identity and the exclusivity of his message. Or maybe, maybe the truth Jesus taught actually explains the life he led. Maybe the truth he taught is not in tension with the life he led. Maybe it explains it. Maybe the possibility of finding deep truth and offering broad tolerance are not mutually incompatible. Maybe they're mutually inseparable. This is a very important topic for our day, for our culture, for people who follow Jesus or people who are thinking about following him. You'll notice when you consider the topic of tolerance and narrowness, when you go through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus never commands tolerance. He never says, be thou tolerant. Why is that? Well, tolerance has a kind of a, a minimalist quality to it. It comes from a Latin word, uh, tolerantia, uh, which means to put up with or to endure. And that's not actually what the soul craves. You know, when Kathy and I got married, uh, she did not say, I promise to tolerate you from this day forward, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, in sicknesses and hell, to put up with you and to endure you until death shall bring relief. <laughs> Parents don't tuck their kids in at night and say, good night, honey, sweet dreams, I tolerate you so much. You were not made by God to be tolerated. You were made by God to be celebrated. We all know this in our souls. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't say, tolerate your enemies. He doesn't say, put up with those who persecute you, let alone people who just think differently. If you've been through this series, you know about this because we've been studying this. He doesn't say, you know, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember your brother or sister has something against you and you don't like them and you don't like what they believe or how they act, well, you know, tolerate them. He doesn't say if someone forces you to go with them one mile, put up with it. <laughs> Tolerance is a very good thing as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far. It goes one mile, it doesn't go two. I suppose tolerance is better than intolerance, but tolerance is a pretty low bar. You can tolerate someone without loving them, but you can't love someone intolerantly. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is inviting us to live in the kingdom of God, a spiritual reality where the primary law is love, because God is love. So love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy. Love will certainly include the virtue of tolerance. But this leads to a question. Why should we practice tolerance? Tolerance itself, which is talked about a lot in our day, actually requires a foundation. If it's gonna be an enduring virtue, it needs a rationale. It needs to stand on something. 
In our day, quite often, it's claimed that people who believe in absolute truth are the ones who will lead us to hatred and war. That what we need is the practice of charity without the divisiveness of beliefs. We need the practice of charity, uh, tolerance, and acceptance without the divisiveness of beliefs. But here's the deal. The claim that all people are equal in dignity, that all people are deserving of our tolerance, is itself a moral and spiritual belief. So where does that belief come from that all people have dignity and deserve tolerance? Tolerance is built on the claim that every human being has dignity and equal worth. That is an absolute claim that people have that. And if you undermine it by saying there is no such thing as a claim to be able to know the truth, you end up eroding the very ground on which the practice of tolerance stands. In other words, the cure for arrogance and intolerance, which are horrible sins and often infect the church as much or more than any place else, is not that we should embrace uncertainty. You know, well, we just don't really know. The cure is that we embrace humility. You can be right and humble. It's possible. You can also be uncertain and arrogant. G.K. Chesterton wrote about a hundred years ago uh, about precisely this subject. This is what he wrote. What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. A person was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Now in our day, you know, we're all sure of ourselves. We're all confident in ourselves, but we're not confident that we can know anything. Chesterton said this, we are on the road to producing a race of people too mentally modest to believe the multiplication table. <laughs> what Jesus taught is that the greatest foundation for both tolerance and love resides in God and in his kingdom. People should be prized because they are loved by God. People should be free because God gave them a will. God gave them a little kingdom where they're to exercise dominion. Now, all of these things bring us to the narrow gate that Jesus is talking about in this text, which is so often misunderstood. The narrow gate is not narrow-mindedness. The narrow gate is not doctrinal correctness. The narrow gate is not always being right and having everyone else be wrong. The narrow gate is not religious intolerance. The narrow gate is doing what Jesus said to do. The narrow gate is obeying, you know, and that's another word that we have a hard time with in our day, obeying creatively, intelligently, joyfully, uh, falteringly, with relaxed hands and ungritted teeth, obeying the one who has thoroughly mastered life and death, the one who knows. Obeying him in all things is the narrow gate. What's the broad gate? Well, the broad gate is just doing anything else. The broad gate is doing anything except seeking to obey Jesus in all things. All right, we'll talk about more of this in just a moment. We as humans have this natural propensity to try and fit things, objects, into areas that they don't belong. 
I have a two-year-old nephew, and I watched him play this game where he was trying to fit stars and blocks and circles into a toy with those same shapes. And he would naturally take the circle block and try and put it in the square one, or take the star block and put it in the square one, trying to add objects to places where they don't belong. He also tries to shove forks and toys into the air conditioning vent, typical two-year-old. We laugh at him, right? As adults, we know that he's being being silly, Uh, but in some ways we do the same thing. A few years ago, a friend and I were driving around Ireland, and we noticed as we were driving that a lot of the cars next to us had dings and scratches. People would rent cars and then take them out to explore the countryside, and they would naturally try and fit their car into a place it didn't belong. The roads in Ireland and the countryside are small and narrow, and they often have multiple sheep gates. People were trying to fit these large cars into roads that weren't made for them. And these roads are everywhere. Larger cars cramming through small roads. This idea isn't just a personal problem either, right? In Formula One, go McLaren, uh, we see races and tracks, uh, especially street races, that were made and crafted for older Formula One cars. The cars have naturally grown and widened, and so the current model of cars is oftentimes crammed into these little races. We're conditioned from young ages to force things through narrow gates in our lives. Rather than grab the correct brick to fit into a toy, or rather than rent a smaller car, rather than going back to old Formula One vehicles, we think and we deem and we try and fit things into narrow gates. And we know, right, that we don't just do this with things. Sometimes, and if we were honest, uh, we would probably say we regularly try to do this in our faith. With students, we talk a lot about what it looks like for us to create God in our own image as we walk in our early faith. Our students are wrestling with and questioning and feeling a lot of things, and those feelings and ideas are important, but we always encourage our students to match those feelings and thoughts and ideas with what Jesus said. So that when they uh, come up and they're annoyed with their their parents, they balance the annoyance with what we're told to honor our elders in. When they are faced with the rigors of school, they can balance it with the idea of doing everything for God. When they're approached with the other, they balance it with their command to love others. Our students are learning how to love and obey God without creating God and who they want God to be. It's a constant and a fun exercise to do with students to help them and guide them and and allow us all to walk with God and not create God. And the thing that we teach our students to do is the thing that Matt is helping us learn today. How do we in these verses accept and live into this invitation that Jesus is giving us to live into the kingdom? How do we walk through our narrow gates? We're going to rejoin Matt to understand how this verse aligns with our daily walk, how this verse challenges us to obey and to live and to love in the freedom of God's kingdom, what it means to be a disciple. All right, so obeying Jesus in all things is the narrow gate. 
the broad gate is doing anything except obeying Jesus in all things. And it's only through the narrow gate that we find freedom. Jesus put it like this, if you obey my teaching, you are truly my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, those words, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, are inscribed on more university campuses in our country than any other saying. But they don't often include the prior phrase, if you obey my teaching, you are truly my disciples, then you will know the truth. If you obey. You know, in our day, we generally think freedom is the opposite of having to obey something. We usually think of freedom as uh, the absence of restrictions, but it's not. I heard about a young girl whose first pet was a goldfish. Uh, she felt bad for this goldfish being cooped up in a tiny little fishbowl all day. And so one day when her mom was in the other room, she liberated the fish. Uh, she took him out of his glass prison and set him on the carpet where he could breathe the fresh air of freedom and boldly go where no fish had gone before. Do you want to guess what happened to that fish? <laughs> In order to be free to live, a fish must be restricted to water. It's a fish's nature. Freedom is not the absence of restraint and restriction. Freedom is finding the right restriction. It's swimming in the moral and spiritual reality of God and his kingdom for which my little nature and your little nature were made. If you obey the teachings of Jesus, he says, you really are my disciples and you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free, like water makes a fish free. Now the issue Jesus pushes relentlessly from here to the end of the Sermon on the Mount is the question, whose disciple will you be? You know, a lot of people in churches think the church exists to make Christians. And that Christians are people who believe the right things that you have to believe in order for a narrow-minded God to let you into heaven. Just to be clear, Jesus never called anyone to be a Christian. Look it up. He called everyone to be his disciples. Prostitutes and tax collectors and Roman centurions and religious leaders and Samaritan lepers. And disciple was not a confusing or uh, mysterious word with uh, any kind of particular religious uh, association. Uh, a disciple is someone who's committed to being with another person to learn from them how to do something. You are someone's disciple. By that I mean you've learned how to live from someone. When a baby is born, he or she has to learn how to talk and how to walk and how to read. And then they learn how to spend their time and how to spend their money and how to relate to others. I and mean, we all have to learn this. It's the nature of the human condition. Human beings learn how to live by being disciples. Everyone is someone's disciple. You know, the first are usually our parents, and then maybe our teachers, then maybe our peers, or maybe a mentor, or often in our day, celebrities or an online community. For better or for worse, on purpose or by drifting, you are someone's disciple. You are. And that person you become a disciple of will teach you a way of life. To be someone's disciple means to choose to be with them, to learn from them how to be like them in some way. 
So when Jesus talks about the narrow way or the broad way, he's just talking about the way life is. It has nothing to do with narrow-mindedness or uh, look at how right I can be. Life is just this way. If you want the freedom to make great music, you will have to arrange your life around practicing and lessons and scales and study. If you want the freedom to compete at the highest level in athletics, you must arrange your life around exercise and drills and coaching and watching video. If you're an alcoholic and you wanna be free from addiction, you must arrange your life around surrendering your will and going through the 12 steps and getting a sponsor and helping other people. The narrow way is that way of life through which you receive the power to live the vision, to play the piano or to play a sport or to be sober or to live like Jesus. The narrow way is simply the way that vision requires you to arrange your life in order to receive power to do what it is to, uh, th that you have to do in order to achieve that vision. The broad way is just do anything else. You know, around playing the piano or sports or alcohol, I mean, the broad way is just do anything else. Particularly, it's just do what you feel like doing or do what everyone else is doing. Now, when Jesus says that many take the broad road and few take the narrow road, I mean, he's not predicting how many people will end up in heaven. And for sure, he's not saying God will be happy if a few make it. God is not willing that any should perish. Jesus is simply noting that the broad way is just the, the default mode of life. Generally, people tend to just drift through their life by habit or whatever they see going on around them. And so the question for you and me is, have you become a disciple of Jesus? Have you gone through the narrow gate? That's the decision you and I have to make. Is living the way Jesus would live if he were in my place your top priority? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Or are you a disciple of money or security or addiction or your image? This is so crucial. This is, this is why we exist as a church. For the next few weeks, we're gonna just focus on exactly what it means to be a disciple. The urgency of this call of Jesus, I mean, it takes up the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And you and I are gonna have an opportunity to commit ourselves to being his disciple. That is to put obedience to Jesus above all else. And I just wanna invite you to start thinking and praying about that this week. And then toward the end of August, uh, we're gonna do baptisms. Uh, Jesus actually said that the very first step for someone who wants to be his disciple is to get baptized as a public expression of their commitment to him. You know, and I've heard people say they don't wanna get baptized because they'd be embarrassed for people to know that they hadn't get, gotten baptized yet or, you know, it would make them feel uncomfortable or they don't wanna get their hair wet in public. I just wanna, I, I wanna tell you something. I, I promise you, for anyone who is bold enough to take that step in their faith journey, when you get baptized, every one of the rest of us will cheer you on like crazy. I mean, you have no reason to be embarrassed. All right, what I wanna leave you with today that you can practice this week is the promise that if you go through the narrow gate, 
and you walk the road of obedience to Jesus, which is the best road, you will not do it alone. Through the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus will be available to you in every moment, every step along the way. Through prayer, through the words of scripture, through the least of these in whom Jesus is always present, uh, through a thought of whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pleasant, whatever is honorable, you will not be alone on the narrow way. I wanna close with a story about a guy named Charlie who went spelunking in a cave. Uh, his friend told him that there was an inner chamber with a pool of great beauty, but you could only get there by a very narrow way. And so they started walking through the narrow way. And after a while, the ceiling got lower and lower and Charlie had to crouch down. It kept getting lower and he had to get on his knees. It kept getting lower and he had to crawl. It kept getting lower, he had to get on his stomach. Eventually, it got so constricted in this pitch black cave that he had to lay flat on his back and exhale so he could scoot a few inches. And then he would take another breath and he would do that again. That's the only way he could move. Now, why would Charlie do this? It's because there's something wrong with Charlie, that's why. <laughs> He said the only way he made it was he had a friend who knew the way and that friend just kept saying, keep listening to me. Don't think about the dark. Don't think about the cave. Don't think about the fear. Just listen to my voice. Just do what I tell you to do. Just keep going and we'll get there. And they did. Listen to me. You have a friend that you can listen to in the cave, in the dark, when you're scared and you can hardly breathe. And maybe you're there now and it scares you to death. You're not alone. You're maybe least alone when you feel most alone. Jesus is there in the darkness and the fear. And he's whispering to you, don't give up. It'll be okay. I'm with you. So this week, if you're thinking about becoming his disciple, listen to his voice. When you get up in the morning and when you go to bed at night, when you go to work, when you come home, when you have a problem or when you're filled with joy. This week, get a Bible out and read the words of the Sermon on the Mount and ask Jesus, will you speak to me? Anytime you think of it, just practice doing what he said to do. Learn not just to obey him, but to revel in the thought of obeying him, to think maybe obeying him is in fact the greatest opportunity I'll ever know in my life. Make your fundamental identity that you are a disciple of this man, Jesus. Be utterly narrow in your devotion to him and then incredibly broad-minded in your interactions and acceptance and love and conversations and tolerance and celebration of people who are radically different than you. And remember, when you go through that gate, no matter how narrow the path, no matter how dark the cave, you're never alone. All right, let me pray for you. God, I ask that you would help us to understand this teaching of Jesus that can be very complicated. That the narrow way isn't about me being right or about doctrinal correctness. It's about being obedient to Jesus. It's about being a disciple of Jesus and following what he teaches. It's not about a few people who are going to make it into heaven. Help us to understand that. And God, I pray that you would 
help us as we live our lives to be narrow in our devotion to you, but broad-minded in our acceptance and love for the people that you bring into our lives, no matter how different they are. And God, for those who are in the cave right now, those who are in the dark, those who are afraid, I just pray that you would be with them, that you would show them that you are there, that they could hear your voice, that they can respond to you, and that you care and you love them, and that you'll help them to make it through. And God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.